we prepare to hear your word. I pray that there would be a really true spirit of worship in this room. That we wouldn't be here for what we can get from you. We wouldn't be here for what we want from you. But we would be here because we really truly want to worship you. You see behind the facade. You see behind the smile. You see behind the hands raised. You really know who we are. And this Congregation Day, Lord, I join hands and hearts with you to thank the congregation. So many times we just go past each other and we never say thank you. And today is a thank you that we're expressing from you, Lord tangible, something that we can see, something that we can feel, but it's from you, and I thank you that you have given us this opportunity to be an extension of you this morning. Bless your word in Jesus' name. We all say amen. amen. Hallelujah. Why don't you go ahead and open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. Thank you, worship team. Were they great or what? Acts chapter 2, and we're going to read verses 42 to 47. Real familiar portion of scripture. Capítulo 2. Um, 42 to 47. And I'm reading it from the Message Bible. And it reads like this, all the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. A deep sense of awe came over them all, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders, and all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property, don't worry, I'm not going to ask any of you to do that, they sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day, the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. I want you to repeat after me. And each day, the Lord added to their fellowship. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat today. I don't have a title. I'm sure the front row will come up with one by the time I finished. They are famous for changing my titles anyway, so it doesn't even matter if I give it a title. They change it on me. But today is Congregation Day, and as we shared, it's a, a day when we celebrate being part of a family. We have set this day apart to rejoice in the fact that we are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. Now, what makes a house a home? It isn't the furniture. It isn't the rooms in the house. It isn't the walls, the paint or the roof, there's much more to a home than just a physical structure. When it comes to the house of God, the same thing is true. God wants his house to become our home. And yet so many of us, even sitting in this room today, are homeless. We don't have a church home. We miss out on the benefits of his home. Now, what does it take to turn our church into a home? Well, I decided to go into Webster's Dictionary and find out what exactly is a home. When I looked it up, it said this, a place where a person, family, or household lives together, where somebody was born or raised and a place where they feel they belong. A place where a person or animal, don't forget our dogs and cats, a place where a person or animal can find refuge and safety or live 
insecurity. An establishment where somebody who is in need of care, rest, or medical attention can stay or find help. All of those things are what turn a house into a home. All of the same things are the things that turn a building into a family of God. It's more than just a building that we meet in. It's a place where we should be able to bring our friends and our families and where we can actually build our life. Now, most of the definitions that are included in this definition of a home are also included in our mission statement. We're called, our mission statement says we are called to inspire and instill within people the desire to fulfill their potential in life with a sense of dignity, belonging, and destiny. And all of those definitions, all of those key words were all in the definition of a home. And I thought, wow, isn't that something? Way back when we got our mission statement, we were describing home. This Congregation Day, we want to celebrate being a home for you. A place where we worship together, a place where you feel a sense of belonging. A place where you find God to be your refuge. A place where you find safety. A place where you begin to learn how to trust God again and even to trust other people. We want you to feel that this place is a place where you can find the care that you need. That you can find rest. That you can be paid attention to. That you can find it here in this church home. In your home, you begin to learn manners. Ever had your mother slap your hand <laughs> and say, you know, isn't it just annoying? Can you remember when you were young and, um, and somebody gave you something and your mother would say, what do you say? And you're like, thank you. Oh, I want that. I want that. What do you say? Please. You hit your brother and sister. What do you say? Sorry. And you never do it with an attitude of, whoa. You go, please. Sorry. Thank you. <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> when you do something you shouldn't do, what do you say? Looks like, whoa, who did that? Excuse me. Those words of manners that were taught to us are words that actually bind us together. The words of, I'm sorry, excuse me, forgive me, thank you, please. And from the scripture that we just read from the book of Acts, the church in Jerusalem had to learn these words, these words and they had to learn them very quickly because the Jerusalem church had a major problem. The problem was is that they had 120 people that went up to the upper room, prayed, had the dissension of the Holy Spirit come down upon them. They left that room, 120. Peter preached, and on his first Preaching, they had 3,000 souls get saved. That's a good problem, but it's a problem. Because you only had a room that filled 120. And now you have just grown to 3,120. What are you going to do? One day revival. 3,000 people. Talk about overwhelming. I don't think any church is set up for this kind of major growth in one day. I would love to be able to say, let's have 3,000 people, but I don't know if we could do it. The, yeah, <laughs> five services. The challenge they faced was how to disciple these new believers. They had 3,000 of them to get them established in the Christian life as quickly as possible. And this was really kind of complicated because what you have to understand is that these new converts 
accepted Christ as their Savior during Pentecost. It was during a time when all the foreigners came into Jerusalem. They had everybody come. They were all different languages. They were all different cultures. It would be like we had major, major, you know, uh, like the Olympics. Everybody comes in, and they come in from everywhere. That's what happened at Pentecost. And all these people accepted Christ. They were there for the celebration of Pentecost, but now it had ended, and now these people had accepted Christ as their personal Savior. So their friends who didn't accept Christ, they're ready to go home. They're going, come on, we've been here all week already. It's time to go home. But since Jesus Christ had just entered their heart and entered their lives and rearranged all their priorities, they said, you know what, we got to stick around. we got to learn about what we just did. We just accepted Christ. What does it mean? What do I do? How do I go from here? What do I say? How do I act? And the church didn't have a meeting place up to that time. They crowded into homes and any available corner of the temple. The Bible says that the apostles had classes and they taught the people. They taught everybody. And the thing is, is that new believers were coming in all the time. By the time that this is in Acts 2, 42 to 47, by the time they get to Acts 4, 4, 2,000 more people got saved. Now they had 5,000. What are you going to do with 5,000 people? Well, the apostles didn't really have an organized process of discipleship. <laughs> they were like, what are we going to do with all these people? But they were doing the best they could under the conditions. It must be like, you know, if you have that many people like trying to herd cats, like, you know, the doors come open, every, ah, they all want to go in all at the same time. But in building this brand new church, the Lord used three different methods to build them. He used the word of God, he used the work of God, and he used the worship of God. The first thing that he used was the word of God. The Bible says in the scripture that they devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine. Now remember, these believers did not have the New Testament in a book. It had not yet been written. Jesus had just died. It had been just a period of a few weeks, months, and now all of these people were now Christians. What they did have, though, were the apostles. So the groups used to gather together in places all over the city, and the apostles, each one of them, would take charge. Now, there were 11 apostles, because remember, Judas hung himself. So 11 apostles took charge, and it's almost like they had many churches all over the place. And the apostles were sharing different things. They were sharing and spending hours talking about Jesus, who he was, what he did, what he said, how he had interpreted the Old Testament, how, what they saw him do, how they felt, what Jesus promised, what it meant. They were sharing everything that they knew with these new converts. And these converts were hungry. They were taking everything in. Tell us more. Tell us more. But they shared the contents of what we now have as the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They gave the word of God. The second thing that they gave to them was the work of God. As the disciples were teaching the word and leading the worship, they were always doing more. They were trying to get these people involved. They were ministering to the needs of all the believers in their congregation. The Bible says that signs and wonders were being done. Miracles of healing were taking place inside the congregation inside their lives, and even outside. The work of evangelism was going on because they had added two more thousand in just one chapter away. So they were going out, they were hearing the apostles talk about the word of God, talk about what Jesus did, talk about his works, and then they would go out and they would share it, and then two more thousand people got saved. Imagine if every single person in this room won two people in one year. We wouldn't even fit in here. Just two people. These people went out and duplicated themselves in one chapter. And the Bible says that daily 
the Lord was adding to their number those who were being saved. Daily people were getting saved. So not only did they have the word of God, and only, not only did they have the work of God, but then they had the worship. Their worship involved a lot of things that we do here even today in the service. The teaching of the word, the praying, the offering, the praise, the ministering. And in between all these great building blocks of building a church, there was the mortar, there was the glue, which is what I want to focus on this morning. And it's called fellowship. That's what it's called, fellowship. The glue that kept the church together was the fellowship of God's people, both formal and informal fellowship. They fellowshiped in the word. If you've been to a journey growth group, and you should be in a journey growth group, but if you've been there, you've had an opportunity to talk about the word, to laugh, to pray, to learn a new principle of God. You've had a wonderful time of fellowship. I heard that Adam's group lasted until over 1 o'clock in the morning on Friday. They fellowshiped. The early church, they fellowshiped not only in God's word, but they fellowshiped in the work. Because whenever we do evangelistic efforts like we do in this church, we had Harvest Day just a couple of weeks ago, which is what the world considers Halloween. We call it Harvest Day. We've had servant evangelism. Everything that we do here takes work. But in the work, there's always fellowship. Always fellowship. Somebody will always make sure that there's fellowship. When I would come, we had Passion for Purity at the same time that they were having Harvest Day preparation. And I'd go in there and just see what they were doing. And they always had music on and they always were talking. They were busy preparing for Harvest Day, but they were having fellowship. I heard it. I saw it. They fellowshiped not only in the word and not only in the work, but they fellowshiped in the worship. Now, any worship leader will tell you the hardest thing to do is to get people to fellowship in the act of worship. To really sing. Because there are some people who come and they're just like checking everybody else out. They have more fun checking everybody else out than they do singing to the Lord. When their fellowship was taking place, nothing else was going on. They hung out together. Three times the text that we read mentions how the believers ate together. That's what we're going to do tonight. We're all going to eat together. Now, most of the commentaries will tell you that they only met to get together to do the Lord's Supper because that's what it mentions. But I believe that when you get together with a group of people, you're going to have to break out a taco. You're going to have to break out some tortillas and butter. You know, it doesn't matter what you got. Break out something, an egg. Make a two jam sandwiches, two breads together, jam them, and there you got a jam sandwich. In the early church, that's what they did. They ate and they visited and they learned how to love each other. As I reflect on our church this congregation day, I think we're doing okay in teaching the word. I think we're doing okay when it comes to doing the work. And I think we're doing okay when it comes to worship. But if there's one area that I would probably point out that we really need to work on, it's the area of fellowship. That's the area that I say, mm, we got a weak link here. By fellowship, I mean the inner life, the way that we really relate to each other, how we function here with each other. See, because some of you have already decided, oh, I'm not coming tonight. What? We're not going to have church anyway. Some of you don't even come on Sunday nights. You only come on Sunday mornings. To come on Sunday night would be like, oh, what an effort. The TV would have to blow up. That's the only way you come on Sunday nights. It's like, oh, well, there's nothing else to do. Some of you already made a decision. You're not into the body life. You're not into connecting. You're not into fellowship. 
The way that we love the Lord, the way that we love each other, the way that we love the stranger, the way that we love the outsider, the way that we love the newcomer, that's the heart of fellowship. You can print out those words, put them on a visitor that comes in, and these words on their chest would say, I've come for fellowship. Now, the thing is, 95% of the people who come to our church don't even realize that's what they're coming for. They don't know they're coming for fellowship. They just know they have a need. They just know that there's something missing in their life. But if we were to actually tell them, you know what you're coming for? You're coming for fellowship. Hoping to find a place where they can connect with other people. Everything we do in church can be done at home alone, except for fellowship. You can listen to a sermon at home. You can pray. You can give an offering. You know, go online, give your offering to Victor Abish Hayward. You can drop it in the mail. You can do whatever. You can do the work of the Lord. You can go out next door and across the street and evangelize. You can even sing a song. You can do all of that at home. The only thing you can't do at home is fellowship. Who are you going to fellowship with? Go in the mirror and say, hey, how you doing? <laughs> you can't join hands. You can't sit around talking and laughing. Fellowship is no fun when you do it by yourself. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 18, 20, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. When we come together in Jesus' name, something miraculous happens. Actually, what it is, love happens. Romans 5, 5 says, the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. People are dying for fellowship. You are dying for fellowship. That's why we come to church. We come for fellowship. People who come to church don't necessarily know that they have come for fellowship. Because if you ask people, why did you come to our church? They're going to tell you, oh, well, I'm looking for a church home, or, or I'm looking for a church that teaches the Bible, or I'm looking for a church that has a children's ministry, or I'm looking for some help for my teenage kid who's driving me nuts, or I'm looking for help for my son or my daughter. I need a home. Put them in. They'll always give you the reasons why they came. You know why they really come? They need to connect and have fellowship. Now, why do people leave to join another church? Because they're looking for fellowship. A church where the congregation loves the Lord, loves one another, and loves the newcomer. Everything else comes second. We need a place to fellowship. What's really sad is when people come to our church and we, the church, don't realize that's what they're coming for. We just overlook their need for fellowship. And this explains why the church as a whole keeps doing the wrong things to draw people in. I believe in rallies. I believe in crusades. I believe in revivals. I believe in all types of, ev of evangelism. But I believe more in people inviting people to come to church. It's you, individually, who are going to actually win people to Christ, who are going to bring them. People connect to people. When was the last time you invited your friends, your coworkers, your family members to church? Well, we're willing to do it when it comes to a crusade. We're willing to do it when it comes to a rally. We're willing to do it when it comes to a big thing. But what about on Sundays? What about on Sunday nights? What about on Wednesdays? Some of you may feel like you're waiting for church to be finished just so that you can get out and you never connect with anybody. I've shared that in growing up, we had nine children, and I was the oldest, and my parents, and we lived in a two-bedroom house with one bathroom. And guess what? We never knew we were poor. 
Anybody else experience that? A lot of you. You grew up, you didn't know you were poor. You weren't even poor, you were poor. <laughs> you just didn't even know it. I didn't know there was, there was like two, I mean, in, my, in the books I would read, people had two and three and four bathrooms. Like, what could they do with all those bathrooms? I, didn't, I couldn't understand. It's like, oh, my gosh. I didn't know that I was poor. I really didn't. You know why I didn't know that I was poor? I was poor. Because we were a family. We were a family. We got through it together. Every up, every down. You know, one of the Christmas, and I remember this so clearly, and it makes me laugh whenever I think about it, because I grew up in the neighborhood. And if you know anything about neighborhood houses, they're not that good. <laughs> we had roaches, and we had mice and rats. And I remember one Christmas day, we're all around the Christmas tree, and we're opening up gifts, all nine kids and my parents. And all of a sudden, we see this little rodent. And my dad got it, and he killed it. And all nine of us are going, yay, that's our Christmas present. <laughs> One less in the house. Now, for some of you, that may not mean anything, but for us, it meant a lot, okay? <laughs> like one less. We got through. We got by because we were a family. Now, I don't want to discourage you from paying your building pledge because, as you know, we need your building pledge. We need to get this place finished. I'm all wanting to get this place completed, looking nice. But if you're waiting to invite somebody because of the way the church looks, you're mistaken. Because the way the building looks is not that important. What's important is you. If we're a family, we can handle it. We go through things in our families all the time. Sometimes the sink doesn't work. We get by. Sometimes the toilet goes out. We get by. The washer goes out. We get by. Why? Because we're a family. And if you're letting this keep you from becoming a part of the family, then you're letting things and stuff be your obstacle. You know, I don't think there's anybody who's sitting across the street or down this block who's saying, you know, honey, I'd go to that church if they really had nice carpet on the floor. You know, I think I'm going to go visit that church once everything is done. Because I'm going to tell you something. There are people out there who are hurting who just don't care. They don't care how the building looks. They're looking for fellowship. They're looking for a church with a great group of people who love the Lord, who like each other, who just like each other. And they welcome newcomers. See, the secret for fellowship is something that the world already knows. They already know the secret. People will go wherever they're going to have a good time. The bars know it. The sporting events know it. Everyone but God's people know it. Because we have sports bars everywhere. When I used to go to the Dodger-Giant games, when the Dodgers would win, okay, just thought I'd throw that in. But whenever I would go down to the city and I'd go to the stadium, if you park your car uh, far off, you'd have to walk past some sports bars. And I would walk past some sports bars, and I'd always see people there an hour to two hours before the game. The game hadn't even started, and they were already there. And it wasn't just one or two or five or ten. I mean, they'd be packed out. Why? Because these sports bars would have signs up ahead 
weeks before the game, and they would let everybody know when the next major sporting event would be taking place. So when the Giants would play the Dodgers, you wouldn't be able to find a parking space anywhere near that sports bar. And let's just assume that there's, let's say, 75 people packed in that sports bar. Sometimes it could be more, it could be less. But let's just say for, for numbers sake, there's like 75 people packed in that sports bar. Let me ask you this. How many of those people do you think own TV sets? You think they own more than one? Probably. How many of them could buy their drinks cheaper somewhere else? That's the reality of it. Why are they there? Fellowship. That's why they're there. For two or three hours, or four or five, depending on how long the game is, they're not Republicans, they're not Democrats, they're not black, they're not white, they're not Baptists, they're not Methodists, they're not Catholics, they're just sports fans. And they will holler together, complain together, boo and cheer together, give high fives, even hug somebody they don't even know. Once or twice. And when the game is over and they're going home, regardless of who won or who lost, something inside of them is satisfied. They have had a great time. They have fellowship. As Christians, we have the authentic fellowship that God intended. We have the authentic stuff that people are hungering for. Only in Jesus Christ does the fellowship meet our deepest need. Only in Jesus Christ does that fellowship satisfy the greatest hunger that we have because it's all about the love of God. Colossians 2.2 says that we are knit together in love. 1 John 1.7 says if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. 2 Corinthians 13.14 says the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all now and forever. I mean, I could give you scripture after scripture after scripture. It's all about Jesus and our relation with him. When I accepted Christ as my Savior when I was 17 years old, I remember feeling so different when I was driving home because I had cried so much at the altar. There had been so much hurt and so much pain in my life that I had been holding on to that I cried and I cried and I cried. And I had held so much of it in that I actually felt I had lost like 10 pounds, maybe 20, that night when I cried. And the overwhelming feeling that I had that flooded my life was that I felt like I loved everybody. Ever felt like that? You just, you just accept Christ and now you just love everybody. And I remember it like it was yesterday. And over the years, I've discovered this, that when I'm close to the Lord, I love you all. When I am right with God, I love you all. But when I get out of fellowship with God, mm, I get critical. I do. Just like you. I get critical. I start looking, man, look at that one. Ah, they're not here again. Ah, what's their excuse this time? Ah, oh, they're kids. They're always using their kids as an excuse. I get critical. I get critical of people, not just the church. I get critical of people out in the, man, these people can't drive. What's wrong with them? Man, get that person off the road. Who gave them a license? I get critical of the leaders. I get critical of the staff. I get critical of everybody. I'll probably say that without the fellowship of the Lord, we all fall into that category. Some of 
the people in here, there's just a few, but there's not a whole lot, but there's a few. You're chronically complaining. Chronically complaining. You're the chronic critic. The chronic complainer. You're never satisfied with anything. You're always pointing out the negative in the leadership. Always pointing out the negative with the pastors. Always criticizing the church. We don't do this. We don't do that. I will tell you this for all you who are the CCs. <laughs> chronic critics, chronic complainers, whatever you want. I would probably say, you're out of fellowship with God. You're just out of fellowship. So what's the solution for the UCCs? Get to the altar. Devote yourself to Christ. Rekindle your love for him. And then you'll be able to love people again. Some of you may think I'm probably making too big of a deal over fellowship. Some of you are thinking, I know how to fellowship already. Let me tell you what the Bible says that real fellowship is. It's just a few. Let's see where we add up. And I say we because I had to do this. The Bible says that we are to be there for one another. We are to pray for one another. Be at peace with one another. Wash one another's feet. Love one another. Be members of one another. Be devoted to one another. Honor one another. Judge not one another. Be of the same mind to one another. Receive one another. Greet one another. Admonish one another. Wait for one another. Care for one another. Serve one another. Be kind to one another. Submit to one another. Lie not to one another. Comfort one another. Edify one another. Consider one another. Do not speak evil against one another. Do not grumble against one another. Confess to one another. Be hospitable to one another. And then fellowship with one another. Man, I was checking all those one another's out and I'm like, I think I'm slipping. What's the difference between a clique and real fellowship? Well, a clique can look like real fellowship, except there's one big exception. Cliques are closed. Cliques are exclusive. The members like one another, but they don't want anybody else in their group. A fellowship lets everybody in. Now, sometimes you may think the pastors that we got clicks. No, we just have certain people who invite us out. Why don't you invite us out? When was the last time you invited Pastor Lenny and Lisa out? Pastor Adam and Gina out? Pastor Aniva and Lisette out? Me. It's so easy to judge. It's so easy to say, oh, they're always with that one. Oh, they're always with that one. When was the last time you were hospitable? I wonder if the new person who came in today, and I know we have a few, that came to visit our church today would walk away this morning feeling important. Feeling that they have a sense of belonging because you have made them feel important. See, we can all like each other, but true Christian fellowship opens its arms to newcomers and welcomes them. I am here 37 years later because of fellowship. When I came into Victory Outreach, I saw all the people who were in the church, and I said to myself, I do not belong here. I just don't. Because, see, you got to remember, the church was less than 100 people. And the majority of that congregation was filled with drug addicts, alcoholics, and their families. I had come alone. I was already on my own at 17. I came by myself. I looked at all these people, and I was like, oh, no, I'm in the wrong place. I didn't feel like I fit in. Everyone there had something in common. They were either ex-drug addicts, ex-prostitutes, ex-gang members, ex-alcoholics, ex-something. But there was nobody in there who had been like me. Nobody had gone to 12 years of Catholic school. I was like, okay, I'm, I'm by myself. Nobody had 
you know, I didn't have a drug problem. I didn't have a drinking problem. I didn't have a pornography problem. I didn't have any of those problems. But I had problems. Just not their problems. And everybody already knew each other. And to me, they were all old. Because I grew up in an era that the motto was, don't trust anybody over 30. How many of you remember that motto? I mean, it was everywhere. It was on T-shirts, slogans, buttons, hats. Don't trust anybody over 30. I don't know what we were thinking. We thought everybody over 30 was too old. Well, but you know what happened to me? At 17, people came and they welcomed me. And they made me feel a part of a family. They learned my name. They treated me as though I was someone special. I had been damaged through my life experiences and they made me feel like a plant that had been in a dark corner had just been put out on a porch with sun. Within five years of accepting Christ, I received my call, went into full-time ministry, and got married. I would have missed all of that. I would have missed my call. I would have missed the joy of being exposed to full-time ministry. I would have missed being married to the absolute best man that God had for my life if it hadn't been for the fellowship of the people who kept me in the family of God. See, throughout the years of serving God, I have seen family members turn on one another. And I'm talking here in the church. Because they were unable to see eye to eye. But what was worse, they were not even able to communicate with each other. I've seen it happen to others, and I've also had the pain of it happening to me. And that's why Paul said in Ephesians 4.3, work hard to keep the unity of the spirit. You and I have a responsibility to work hard at keeping this unity. That's the source of our unity is the Holy Spirit. Rebel against the Lord and do things your way and the unity, the fellowship, and the love all melts away like sugar and water. Gone. You want to do what you want to do? There goes all our unity. We always have to be on the lookout for fellowship killers. Fellowship killers. You know, talking during service is a fellowship killer because you're interrupting the people that are behind you. A fellowship killer is pride. A fellowship killer is envy. Maliciousness, meanness, pettiness. I mean, I could go on and on and on. But the common denominator that all of that is shared with is one little word. Sin. Sin means putting our will above the Lord's. That's what it means. See, I used to think that people complained because they had a lot of problems. But I've come to realize that they have problems because they complain. Complaining doesn't change anything. Doesn't even make the situation better. It gets amplified, and you get more frustrated, and you get more discontent, and there's more discord, and it plays, plays havoc with our life. Complaining makes us miserable. The Bible even says it. Psalm 77.3 says, I complained, and my spirit was overwhelmed. Philippians 2.13 says, do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe. See, the remedy is not to have more dinners at night. The remedy is not to have fellowship classes to teach you how to do it. It's not even to preach more on fellowship. What has to happen is that we have to begin to walk in the fruit of the Spirit. We have to become Christ-like. We have to become more loving, more joyful, more peaceful, more long-suffering, more gentle, more good, more faithful, more humble, more self-controlling. I would love to have more people in this church who would have more gifts of the Spirit. 
Because unhappiness will always come with the mirror. You're looking at people, but happiness comes with the window. Wow, look at that, look at that, look at that. You have opportunities to serve. You have opportunities for fellowship. If you want to be miserable, it's only because you're thinking about yourself first. That's all. That's where misery comes. Focus on yourself, you'll be miserable. If you're thinking that it's better to receive than to give, you'll never be happy, ever. You'll never experience the blessing of giving that Jesus taught. I want to close with this. I want everybody to go like this. Hold your hand and make a fist. Tight, tight, tight. Just keep it there while I continue to talk. Because you see, when you make a fist, nothing can get in. Absolutely nothing. No love. No joy. No presence of God. No anointing. Nothing. Imagine that this is your spirit and it's tight. And this is what is quenching God's work in your life. You're there. You can't love the way God wants you to when your spirit is closed. You just can't. But now open it up. <sighs> Feel better? Circulation is coming back. <laughs> you feel better. But when your hand is open, love is able to enter. Freedom to worship. Freedom to fellowship. I read that there are two parts to a sermon. The what and the so what. Well, this congregation day, the sermon that I just gave to you is the what. Now you need to figure out what is the so what. Are you going to fellowship? Lay aside all your grumbling and complainings. Lay aside all your magnifying glass. Lay aside all your criticism. Stop being a CC and start being a fellowshipper, a true fellowshipper, where you're part of the family. You're just really part of the family. Stand with me this morning. And I want you to think about this. Because this altar call is not going to be a traditional altar call. I thought about so many different things of what to do. This is congregation day. This is family day. This is the day where we give you honor. And I want to be able to greet every single one of you. I want to be able to shake your hand. I want to be able to thank you for being a part of this family. But I want to ask you the question. Have you really been in fellowship? Have you been in fellowship with the Lord? Have you been in fellowship with each other? Have you opened up your heart, your lives? Or are you just here? Just listening, saying, hurry up, hurry up, I'm hungry, I gotta go. Are you really part of the family? There's not gonna be so much of an altar call as we normally do it. But I want you to feel like you're a part of the family today. That no matter what you've been experiencing, no matter how you've been feeling, no matter what lack of fellowship has gone on in your life, that today you're going to make a decision. That word fellowship is going to be a part of your life. Fellowship with the Lord and fellowship with each other. And how it's going to be proven is how you go out of your way to make other people feel. That you come back tonight, you come back on Wednesday, and you fellowship one with another. Bow your heads with me. Lord, I thank you for every person who has 
listen to your word this morning. There's been conviction that has gone out to many. For the chronic complainers and critics, for the things that we have not done or the things that we're not doing, I pray that you would convict us that we would start doing. That we would no longer use excuses for not fellowshipping, not joining a journey group, not allowing your word to wash us and cleanse us, but that we would really learn as a family to like each other. That we would let whatever grudge we may be holding, that we would let it go. That we would let you be Lord of our life, totally Lord of our life, not just in our life, but Lord of our life. That we would not run from fellowship with you, but we would run towards you. And I pray, Lord, that you would make us more of a family than ever before. That we would lock arms together, not just physically, but emotionally and spiritually that we would not run to the world for answers, but that we would bring that true fellowship here, that we would meet and greet with an open heart each other, that when people leave here, they will leave feeling like, wow, I have fellowshiped with the Lord and I have fellowshiped with people. I am full. I am full, I am full. Help us to grow together, to not use any excuses anymore for not wanting to be with the family of God. Lay down our armors that has held people at a distance and allow them to be a part of our life. And we give you praise, and we give you honor, and we give you glory. In Jesus' name. And I need you, you need me. We're all a part of God's body. Stand with me, agree with me. We're all a part of God's body. I need you. You need me. We're all a part of God's body. Stand with me. Agree with me. We're all a part of God's body. It is His will that every need be supplied. You are important to me. I need you to survive. Okay, we're going to sing this song again, but I want you to turn around and start singing it.